From WNYC in New York, it's America Are We Ready, our Thursday night national call-in show for President Biden's first 100 days. It's day 93. It's also Earth Day, and the president today announced a more aggressive timetable for cutting greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2030. We'll talk about what that means in the first half of this hour. Biden has made the climate one of his four main priorities. This is also the day of Dante Wright's funeral after he was shot dead by a police officer in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, and it's two days after the conviction of Derek Chauvin. So this hour, we will assess Biden's progress on another of his official top four priorities, fighting racial injustice. America, are we ready for real equal treatment under the law and to really keep the worst kinds of climate emergencies at bay after the latest news? From WNYC in New York, it's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show for President Biden's first 100 days. It is day 93. Good evening again, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. And this being day 93, we only have two programs left in this series. This one and next Thursday's show will devote these last two programs to revisiting Biden's four goals, the four he established on day one, the climate and racial justice tonight, next week on COVID and the economy. Today is Earth Day, April 22nd, right? And today the president held a virtual climate summit with other world leaders. And he announced our country's most aggressive numerical goal yet for cutting climate pollution emissions by 50% by the end of this decade compared to 2005. Now, if that sounds confusing, we'll explain what it means, and we'll take your Biden and the climate questions. So let's bring on our guest for this half hour, Paula DePerna, special advisor to the group CDP, formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, still by those initials, CDP. And that is a not-for-profit that runs a global disclosure system for investors, companies, cities, states, and regions to identify and manage their environmental impact. So, hi, Paula. Thanks for coming on with us. Hi, Brian. Thank you. And listeners, for the call-in portion of this half hour, we would like to simply invite your questions on the Biden climate policy and what it means. Maybe you've been hearing this news all day, and it is confusing. We know that both the science and policy can be complicated in this area, and Paula DiPerna is steeped in both. So we're inviting your questions on Biden climate policy and what it means at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Less opinion, more curiosity, or you can have an opinion and base a question on it, but questions about the Biden climate policy, we want to try to really inform you this half hour at 844-745-TALK. And Paula, would you give us one basic stat To start out, as you understand it, the U.S. only has 4% of the world's population, but I read it emits 15% of the greenhouse gas emissions, according to the Union of Concerned Scientists. Why is our carbon footprint so big? Well, I mean, you go per capita and, uh, you know, we've unfortunately wasted, we waste a lot of energy. We don't have really a significant conservation uh, approach. But it's uh, per capita um, emissions that are much higher than the rest of the world, in part because we, you know, we, we really ha- have a very large country. We, we've had very, very inexpensive, for some people, energy prices, and so our, our consumption has really outstripped the rest of the world. 
And, of course, we have a very big uh, transportation challenge, lots of cars, not so many public trains, nothing almost crossing the country, whereas, of course, as we all say all the time, in Europe you can jump on a train and you'll be within three hours you can cross the continent. Mm. These are now becoming less and less uh, comparable situations because the, you know, the climate... Um, you know, especially post-COVID, you know, our main, our main uh, our em- emissions have gone down, actually, significantly, in part, in large part due to COVID, because we haven't been driving, we haven't been doing right. many of the things that And, that and we'll talk about that a little later for over the course of the last 10 years. Um, but, yeah, we're not just a big country. We're a very consumptive country, if that's the right word. We, um, we, we have a lot of money relative to other countries. We consume a lot of stuff, and that means consuming a lot of energy, and that produces a lot of carbon and other greenhouse gases. So 4% of the world's population, 15% or more of the emissions. Can you explain Biden's new target number? It's to cut this country's planet, this, uh, this country's warming emissions, forgive me, this country's warming emissions by 50% compared to 2005 levels. Why compare to 2005? I think they're tying it back to the year that uh, our consumption of oil, fossil fuels peaked. So they're considering that the kind of high point of our emissions, and they're going to try to reduce against that benchmark. Other countries are uh, reducing uh, against the benchmark that's earlier. So the baselines are always a bit apples to oranges. Um, But 50%, regardless of what baseline, unless it was yesterday, is a significant and major, major reduction. And what's really critical, though, Brian, is the date. You know, anybody can promise anybody anything, and you can promise certainly almost anything for 2050. But trying to deliver this by 2030 is exciting and uh, very focused, but also very challenging. Right. It means you've got to start now and do some big things. But are greenhouse gas emissions going down in the U.S. anyway? You mentioned they're down during COVID time. Obviously, everybody's consuming less of everything. Let me read to you, though, from an EPA data release last November. This was still during the Trump administration. So you tell me, is this Trump spin or is this real data as you understand it? It says, under the EPA's greenhouse gas reporting program, these data show that between 2018 and 2019, total reported greenhouse gas emissions from large facilities fell nearly 5%. These most recent data are consistent with a decade-long trend in which total reported emissions from large facilities decreased by more than 14% from 2011 to 2019. With respect to power plant emissions specifically, emissions from this sector decreased by 25% between 2011 and 2019, unquote. So do you have any factual difference with that at CDP? And if not, why have emissions from large facilities, whatever that means, been declining? Well, it depends what the scope is. I mean, there has been a tremendous amount of transfer and building up of, uh, you know, renewable energy. I mean, honestly, I can't speak to all the details of that because there's quite a lot of difference in terms of what energy is generated by a power plant, what energy then, you know, there's, we measure our emissions not only by what's generated, by what is consumed and also what is called scope three, which are the emissions that are generated by product use. And so it sort of depends where they draw the boundary. 
But it's not that we haven't made progress, uh, Brian. It's, it's that our progress has been very scattered and very unfocused. And what I think is the best thing about Biden's, Biden's uh, plan, you know, talk about the first 100 days, it's, to me, it's very simple. It's four words. At last, the upside. I mean, what he's focusing on, you know, I don't know anybody, especially not me, who wakes up in the morning and says, gee, I can't wait to get up and get into that ex- existential threat and take it on. That's not what we get up to do. And so characterizing climate change as an existential threat, you know, some people say that, but that's not really the point. The point is that there's a tremendous upside here. This is a reindustrialization for common good, for, for, the, for the good of, of people, to employ people, and I think his focus on the employment and the coherence, you know, all across the government, getting everyone focused on that one goal of reducing emissions by the needed number, by the needed date, it almost obviates what's been done in the past because we have a, um, a new world ahead of us, which is really one of reinvention. So, you know, I think it's extremely important to, to, um, to look at it that way. All right. I think we have a reinvention question, if you want to look at it that way. Catherine in Allentown, Pennsylvania. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Catherine. Thanks for calling in. Hi. Hi. Thanks. You're welcome. My question has to do with um, transportation. And um, I'm not, um, I don't have a lot of money, and I, I care about the environment, and I would really like to be able to afford an electric car. And I wondered if uh, your speakers could speak to uh, President Biden and his team's plans for bringing back and perhaps increasing the tax credits, um, um, you know, the incentives to buy electric cars. Yeah, that's, that's a perfect question, because I think that really goes to this issue of coherence. I mean, in, 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 in Europe, for sure, if there is a tax incentive, it's, it's usually on the books for a five to 10 year period, very often 10 years at least. Here, the incentives, as you point out, have kind of had a political flavor. They're on for two years and someone comes in and reverses them or they expire. And so I think what's very critical in, uh, in Biden's plan is that he's, he's really pushing what he calls infrastructure. He's using a very broad definition of the word infrastructure, but it certainly includes building roads that are smarter, that can uh, we're building charging stations for the electric vehicles and the policy, especially what Janet Yellen said today, which is uh, Janet Yellen said, um, you know, this is an economy wide opportunity, also an economy wide challenge. And she's looking very specifically at what kinds of policies would incentivize the reductions that can lead to meeting this ambitious goal, but also help us help you. Janet Yellen, of course, the U.S. Treasury Secretary. Let me read you a tweet that's come in and then take a call, um, both of which reflect some skepticism about there uh, out there about whether for all the media coverage about how big this is, whether it's really that big or will matter. Um, Listener tweets, please push back on the veracity of the solutions proposed, as many solutions seem to approach the problem, but second and third order consequences show them to be extremely lackluster in how effective they will be. For example, carbon capture is an idea not proven. I'm going to let that sit there for the moment and go to Jake in Spokane. Jake, you're on America. Are we ready? Thank you for calling in. Hi, thanks. Um, are carbon offsets really proven too, or is this like kind of a feel-good sort of economic measure? Like, I'm, 
standing at work right now, and we got our um, our corporate sustainability department asking us to vote on which project, either in Kenya or the uh, Amazon rainforest, we would like our company to invest in. So you know, it's just it makes us feel good. Are these carbon offsets, such as like I think what Delta did or another airline, you know, saying we're going to be like we'll wipe our hands clean, you know, by 20 years. Like, does that? Um, yeah, got it. Uh, can you explain carbon offsets and carbon capture? And if those aren't, you know, just cutting out the emissions, do they really matter or are they feel good measures? Right. Well, that's a very critical question when you get into all this uh, carbon offset uh, discussion. So you have to think of it as a system of something goes up and something goes down. So a ton, and, and one of the things about the, the conversation is we often don't speak in terms of tons. This is all about tons. The atmosphere, you know, receives the tons of greenhouse gas emissions, and it doesn't care how we reduce, where we reduce, why we reduce. It just wants the reduction. So given your situation with the offset, so some tonnage is going up from your facility, let's say 20 tons. In theory, yes, if the, if, the, if the project in Kenya is capturing 20 tons, by that I mean the, the trees are sequestering the carbon that went up in Spokane and, 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 and can be sucked back down in Kenya, that's fair. That's a 20 up, 20 down. The problem is nobody's keeping that kind of score. Nobody's keeping exact uh, track of what goes up must come down. We'll pick up on there when we come back. This is America. Are we ready? It's America, Are We Ready? here on Earth Day. About 10 more minutes on Biden's climate announcements today. Then what the White House is doing about racial justice with a week to go before Biden's 100th day in office. I'm Brian Lehrer. Our climate guest is Paula DiPerna, special advisor to CDP, formerly called the Carbon Disclosure Project, which runs a global disclosure system for investors, companies, cities, states, and regions to identify and manage their environmental impacts. And we're inviting your questions about Biden's pledge to reduce greenhouse gas emissions dramatically in this decade and what it means at 844-745-TALK. He made that pledge today at a virtual climate summit with other world leaders 844-745-8255. And Paula, since one of the categories in your carbon disclosure project is for cities, I think we have an interesting question for you from Mark in Douglas, Massachusetts. Mark, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi there. Hi. So my question was, I'm right now in the middle of a municipal election, and one of my campaign's ideas is to get town-owned solar panels to try to help our carbon emissions. We're an old mill town, and, and we still have that old, the old factories every now and then. So what can small-town America really do to help the statewide and nationwide effort to reduce carbon emissions? Great question. Well, Paula, I, think I think a great question for you. A great question in general. I mean, I think you're right at the cutting edge, and you have tremendous power because you may be a small town, but if you could model, if you could really transition uh, to, to, to renewable energy and, and, and model how a small town actually changes its grid, changes its uh, sources of power, distributes uh, more equitably to, to uh, the, entire, the entire town, I mean, you're in a position to not only model, 
but pilot a lot of new technologies. So I think if you, if you, but as a coherent policy, not a little bit here and drib and drab, it's got to be coherent and centralized to an extent. But I think small towns are, are really engines for this. And cities are uh, all over the country are suffering from crumbling infrastructure, ancient, you know, sort of roads and, and deteriorating manufacturing facilities. That's a, a goldmine, literally, for the planet to introduce this transformation. So I wish you the very best. Rocio in Queens. You're on America. Are we ready? Hello, Rocio. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, a question uh, regarding the policies towards indigenous peoples. Um, and protected areas in the United States. How will they differ from Trump to President Biden? And, uh, um, yeah, that would be my question. Is there something that you're looking for from him in that respect? Rocio, you have something in mind? Yes, uh, the um, Dakota Access Pipeline, for example, uh, where... La Donna um, uh, was the win a lot recently passed, and um, it's been such a struggle for indigenous people worldwide. Even the indigenous people from South America came to Standing Rock to support um, the the Standing Rock uh, reservation on on, mm -hmm. on right. the, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Paula, what would you say to Rocio from what you can tell from the Biden policy? Well, I think, you know, there's going to be some balancing out. I think President Biden understands that burning fossil fuels is, is, has got to be phased out, that we cannot continue building pipelines, running fossil fuels through pipelines if we have any chance of addressing climate change. Um, on the other hand, indigenous people uh, back to the early call, earlier call about offsets, you know, on, on, on uh, tribal lands, there's a tremendous latent resource, which a lot of the tribes are uh, uh, developing, which is wind. I mean, tremendous amount of wind power can be generated on tribal lands and, by the way, uh, sent to the Midwest, let's say, or the industrial part of the country if we had a grid that could actually transmit that power. So the whole situation, you have to of the country as a kind of gigantic engine where, as I was saying earlier, emissions go up here and go down there, and we have to think of the whole system as a kind of a piston engine, and that, that we have to run it kind of coherently um, in, in, a, in, a, in an organized fashion. But there's a very big upside, as I said earlier, for tribal uh, people, and I think that the president is going to seriously look at a lot of these pipeline projects and probably uh, delay them or cancel them outright. I don't think he's going to be making big investments in big fossil fuel uh, operations going forward. I want to end this section on what a couple of other major countries whose leaders Biden was in dialogue with this week around this uh, virtual climate summit and, and what they're doing. Uh, a couple of countries in particular, and Jerry in Marble, Minnesota, happens to be calling in about one of the ones I had in mind. So, Jerry, I'm going to let you, I'm going to ask you to set this up. Hi, Jerry. You're on America. Are we ready? Um, I think um, my name is Gary. Gary, I'm sorry. I misheard that. Not a problem. I'm just wondering what uh, if Biden has any plans to deal with the leader of Brazil, Bolsonaro, and his 
he's basically trying to focus everything on the economy and doing so he's allowing companies to go out into the Amazon rainforest and cut down forests and clear them out to raise cattle which is in in the long run that's a really bad uh, proposition right now that's a good setup for what apparently happened today and Paula I know you're you know very involved internationally and I wonder what you think of this Bolsonaro, from what I read, promised to end deforestation in his country by 2030, so important to the global climate goals because of the size of the Amazon rainforest and its role in absorbing carbon, for example. But I thought he was a proponent of deforestation for economic development there, like the caller says, and had weakened environmental enforcement in his government. If, if, If you believe Bolsonaro, why is he suddenly on board? Well, I hadn't heard that, so that's very exciting if it's true. I think he must be suddenly on board a little bit because of what we said earlier. If you sequester carbon, you are essentially uh, contributing uh, to solving the problem, and there there are offset markets. There's ways for that that sequestration to be uh, monetized, let's say, to use a kind of cold-hearted word. So that could be that. There's also probably um, uh, pressure building on him. Consumers don't want to buy products that have uh, come from uh, tropical rainforests uh, that have been uh, raised. Um, uh, they don't want to buy meat from companies that are raising the rainforest. They don't want to buy anything that, that can be as- associated to, with deforestation. So there's probably economic pressure as well. And, you know, as I said earlier, at the end of the day, I don't think people want to be seen as villains in this story. But a lot remains to be seen with uh, what Mr. Bolsonaro will actually do. And here's my source. It's the New York Times this afternoon. Headline, Brazil's Bolsonaro promises to end deforestation despite overseeing a sharp increase. And it said, well, it said that he pledged, I see, he pledged to, uh, to eliminate illegal deforestation by 2030. How big a loophole is that? That's probably a pretty big one. But, you know, with, uh, with uh, uh, satellite monitoring and a lot of, uh, well, with CDP, what we do is, you know, companies disclose to us where they buy their things. We have a supply chain program. Who are your suppliers? So between eyes in the sky and uh, disclosure and then consumer uh, habits, it, it may be a tightening noose around the illegal uh, uh, deforestation. I mean, it, I spent a year in the Amazon to think, that there's droughts there, to think that there are these, all these fires, it's, it's heartbreaking. And uh, I was once uh, at a conference where uh, somebody said, you know, what really would save the rainforest is if the north just paid rent to the south for each tree because of the sequestration potential. And that sounds a little silly, but actually it probably wasn't that bad an idea. Yeah, because we're getting value from them. Uh, and last question, and I'm going to have to ask you to keep this short, because uh, our time is running out, but also significant and also in a how big a loophole is this from that department, um, China's president, Xi Jinping, announced that his country would strictly limit increasing coal consumption in the next five years. Now, China uses massive amounts of coal. It's so bad for the climate, but China also has more credibility problems than the Biden administration does, and I'm suspicious of that language. Strictly limit increasing 
coal consumption. That's a direct quote. Now, that doesn't sound like it'll go down. It sounds like it will increase less, strictly limit increasing coal consumption. How do you hear that promise, Paula, from Xi Jinping? I think you've interpreted it well. The Chinese uh, don't promise uh, uh, without being very careful about their choice of words. However, it must be said that they have actually taken quite a lot of leadership in new technologies and electric vehicles and solar, and they've educated a whole generation of people who know a lot more about climate change than than their parents. So I, I think one has to be somewhat optimistic, but I think you had the right read on that. All right. This Earth Day might go down in history after this virtual summit and, of course, after the change of administration in this country and the U.S., trying to lead on this again. Paula DePerna, Special Advisor to CDP, formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure uh, Project. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show for President Biden's first 100 days here on Day 93. Our second-to-last show as we revisit the four main priorities the president announced on day one, the pandemic, the economy, the climate, and racial injustice. And return now to racial injustice on this day of 20-year-old Dante Wright's funeral, as many of you know, after he was killed by a police officer in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And, of course, it's two days after former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd. In the context of this series, we're asking what could Joe Biden do about this as president and what is he doing? One thing his attorney general did yesterday is to announce a patterns and practices investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department to see how much Derek Chauvin was one bad apple and how much a reflection of the system he worked for. Listen to Merrick Garland. Yesterday's verdict in the state criminal trial does not address potentially systemic policing issues in Minneapolis. Today, I am announcing that the Justice Department has opened a civil investigation to determine whether the Minneapolis Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of unconstitutional or unlawful policing. This effort will be staffed by experienced attorneys and other personnel from the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Minnesota. The new civil investigation is separate from and independent of the federal criminal investigation into the death of George Floyd that the Justice Department has previously announced. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland yesterday. With me now, Fordham University political science professor Christina Greer, also co-host of the podcasts FAQ NYC and What's For Us pod and author of the book Black Ethnics. Thanks for joining us again, Christina. Welcome back to America. Are we ready? Thank you, Brian. And for our calls for this half hour, we'd like to invite black voters for Biden in the presidential election or anyone else for whom racial injustice was a high priority in deciding who to vote for to call in and say how you think he's doing on racial injustice so far. And I know we have a lot of listeners to the show in Minnesota. So Minnesotans, you're also invited to call and tell the rest of the country what you think other states should learn from the wrenching events in and around Minneapolis in the last year. Our number is 844-745-TALK, 
745-8255. Again, if racial injustice was a high priority item for you in deciding who to vote for for president, how do you think Biden is doing so far on this? I know it's early in a four-year term. It's day 93, but he did try to get out of the box quick on this by his lights. How's he doing according to yours? 844-745-TALK. And Minnesotans, you're invited to call and tell the rest of the country what you think other states can learn from the wrenching events in and around Minneapolis in the last year since George Floyd was murdered on Memorial Day last year. Our number is 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Christina, can we start on Merrick Garland's announcement there? Is it clear to you what he'll actually be investigating the Minneapolis department to find out? Well, I mean, I'm not exactly sure, Brian. I mean, you know, many people think that it's a start, but if he's going to investigate Minnesota, then he might want to swing back through New York and Chicago and several other cities, large and small, across the country. Uh, It's definitely a beginning, but we know that Minnesota has had training for officers, some of those officers that were involved in George Floyd's death had gone through the special training in Minnesota. So I think what the issue is, is trying to figure out what the deeper, deep-seated institutional problems are are present. Sorry, I I live in New York City, and so you hear the sirens in the background. Uh, But there's some deeper institutional problems that are clearly uh, going on in the Minnesota Police Department, but I would argue in police departments across the country, especially when it comes to policing and looking at Black people, uh, men, women, and children, uh, where it seems like far too many officers are shooting first and thinking later. I'll ask you about Congress as we go, but how much can a president or his executive branch do on their own about racial justice and policing, when in most cases, contact with the police is with officers from the local, not the federal government. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, where local, state, and federal governance matters. I mean, we do know, though, that setting precedent from the top matters. We saw what happened in the last four years with Donald Trump and William Barr, and then sort of how it permeated through the entire Department of Justice and police departments across the country. So this is a start, I think, with Joe Biden, obviously putting Merrick Garland in. Uh, we have Vanita Gupta. We have someone like Kristen Clark, who's waiting for uh, her votes to come through, uh, changing the culture of the DOJ and making the Civil Rights Division much stronger, robust, and clear about what will and will not be accepted. That will permeate through attorneys general Uh, throughout the country uh, and U.S. attorneys across the country. And then that will hopefully spawn a much more robust investigation to some of the policing that we've seen. And, And I stress in large and small cities, because we have to remember, you know, Ferguson is outside of St. Louis, you know, and we're not just looking at the top 10 tier cities where we had, you know, Freddie Gray or Eric Gardner and major, you know, top tier cities. We're looking at things that are going on in smaller communities uh, that are ripping families and communities apart. And so uh, I definitely think that having Biden have a strong, firm stance about what will be tolerated and what won't be tolerated uh, and having Merrick Garland be on board and every single person in the DOJ who works for him uh, sending that message out 
to police departments across the country to, to let them know that they're on notice and to let them know that they're being watched for some of these incidents that happen on the clock and even off duty uh, is definitely a real start. It's definitely not going to change overnight. It's definitely not going to change some of the institutional insidious practices that have been going on, but I'm looking for optimism where I can. All right. We'll take your calls in a minute. As soon as we come back from a break, Brian in Montgomery, Alabama, stay there. You'll be first. We'll take calls from around the country on how how Biden is doing on racial justice and from anybody from Minnesota on lessons learned over the past year. Stay with us. It's America Are We Ready? This half hour on what the White House is doing about racial justice here on the day of Dante Wright's funeral in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, and two days after then-police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd. With a week to go before Biden's 100th day in office, what is he doing? On this, one of his official top four priorities, fighting racial injustice. We're inviting your calls of assessment on that. If that's a big issue for you, it should be a big issue for everybody. And also calls from Minnesota to tell the rest of the country what you think other states should learn from the wrenching events in and around Minneapolis the past year, 844-745-TALK. And Brian in Montgomery, Alabama, you're on America. Are we ready? Thanks for calling in, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, of course, I'm uh, I'm very pleased with the outcome of the uh, Derek Chauvin trial. Um but as far as Biden, I think he's doing a pretty good job, you know, uh, considering where we've been. Um, as far as, you know, our, uh, the, you know, the past administration, uh, as far as humanity goes, we were like in a sub-basement almost, you know. So considering that we've come from that location, you know, there's so many steps, you know, you can only skip on a ladder. So Biden can, you know, he can't do great. It's hard for him to just do great if we weren't so, so far down, you know, uh, uh, as far as humanity and other things, you know, and as far as diplomacy with other uh, countries who, are, uh, who, who are, are good with humanity and things of that nature. So when coming from that standpoint, I think Biden is doing a, a pretty good job, which is best he can do. He can't do great. Can so you, you know, do, would you like to name... Think, one issue in addition to police reform that you think Biden mm-hmm. is stepping up on or should step up on to foster equality in general? To foster equality, but that he's stepping up? Well, <clears throat> um, I think also uh, you talk, I mean, even looking at how he handled the pandemic, okay, that's a great thing, you know, and I think uh, police reform, he's also start talking about systemic racism. The fact that he's, he's even opening up a conversation and uh, looking at systemic racism uh, as the reality that it is. You know, he's not just, I don't feel like he's just uh, placating to, you know, African Americans mm-hmm. or people of color, you know what I mean? I feel like he's really coming from the heart. He's speaking from the heart when he does these things. You know, and the fact that he said, uh, and I know I'm going back to police reform, he mm-hmm. said that he's going to do more. And he said it on more than one occasion. You know, he, he talked about police re- reform, and he said he's going to do more. And I think that was very inspiring and very, uh, I, just, I just look at it as being honest, you know. He's and just he, he total, reads 
I hear you. He reads credible to you, and he reads like he really cares. And that, of course, is one of Joe Biden's great political strengths. Brian, thank you for calling us from Montgomery tonight. Um, Christina, after the Chauvin verdict, Reverend Al Sharpton spoke to reporters with members of George Floyd's family, and he thanks many people on the ground, like the jury and the teenager who videotaped what is now officially classified as a murder. But Sharpton also singled out for praise two beings higher than the reverend himself. Listen. We want to thank President Biden, who the first time he came out of his house during the campaign, he flew to Houston and met with the family and Attorney Crump and I. And he sat there, and I will never forget, he, he said to George's daughter that I heard you say your father is going to change the world. Well, we can now tell George's daughter she was right. Her father has began the changing of the world for real. But before we do anything, we first want to pray and thank God. Because somehow God made a way. He had mercy. We believe in a God that can even get through the cracks in a jury room and bring conscience and bring truth. And that jury, we want to thank them for letting God give them the strength. So, Christina, you're not a divinity professor, so I'll leave the second part of that to someone else. But there, Reverend Sharpton praised Joe Biden. And, of course, Biden is president today in no small, uh, no small part because black voters chose him overwhelmingly in the primaries and black Democratic turnout in November was substantially higher than it was for Hillary Clinton in 2016 in some key places like Metro Atlanta. So as a political science professor, how do you see the sheer politics, um, you know, beyond right and wrong and morality of what Biden wants to do to keep that core part of his base happy with the party for future elections? And it matters that somebody like Al Sharpton with his national reputation comes out and praises him. It absolutely does. And, you know, I, you mentioned this before, Brian, I think one of the greatest strengths of Joe Biden, not just as a politician, but I will say as a man, is that he actually does have compassion. And he has evolved over time, as have many politicians. But I think he fundamentally understands certain elements of the level of grief and trauma that Black Americans are experiencing, because he surrounded himself with enough Black leaders black politicians and black people who have been able to explain to him how our reality in this country is fundamentally different than so many others who get to wake up and just be free and have full rights uh, as citizens in this country where we fear going to church, going to sleep, going to the park, walking down the street, you know, having any interaction with with policing. Uh, And, you know, for, for Sharpton to take that moment to make this connection. Keep in mind, a lot of Americans have a very short memory. The The years under Donald Trump were treacherous for Black Americans to have the President of the United States use his bully pulpit to say white nationalist rhetoric, uh, to inspire so many people to you know, go 
go with their most base instincts and essentially say, I will protect you. Don't worry. This is your country. Like, this is what you deserve. You know, you should be doing whatever it is you feel you want to do to take back your nation. I mean, he said these things over and over again. And those were not uh, veiled threats to black Americans and black children. Does that make it a low bar politically in a way for Joe Biden? Because look what he's following. Uh, it's it's both and right on the one sense yeah it's a low bar because look at look at what we've had to deal with for four years but in another way it's a higher bar because we don't want rhetoric we want change right uh, you can't just say like oh I empathize it's like okay so now what is the policy prescription you are now in charge you have actually certain powers that you can talk to governors governors can talk to mayors right you can talk to Merrick Garland Merrick Garland can talk to the DOJ DOJ can talk to police departments across the the nation there are ways that Joe Biden can use his influence as the the most powerful executive in the nation to change policy. And I think it's that combination of compassion and policy that people are expecting uh, and hopeful for. And I think some of his nominations across the board are signaling uh, that he's interested in moving the needle. One, he actually has people who are qualified. Two, he actually has people who know the jobs that they're doing. And he's he's not just choosing hodgepodge random individuals, i.e. Ben Carson for HUD. You know, um, I think those are small things. But I mean, we saw that they had huge consequences for the daily lives of so many Americans, especially black Americans for four years. Deb in Minneapolis, you're on America. Are we ready? Deb, thank you for calling in. Thank you so much. I am responding to what um, other states can learn from Minnesota. Now, most of us in Minnesota are white, and Minnesota, by almost any standard that you look at, is one of the best places in the country to live. We white Minnesotans have been smug and self-satisfied for a very long time. Things like uh, all sorts of, of racial inequities and injustices, those happened in other places, not here. The events of the last year have rubbed the the noses of white Minnesotans in the reality of the situation. We have also been picked up by the scruff of our collective neck and shaken. I am so thankful that the uh, jury reached the verdict that it did because that is a small step toward justice. I have been hearing quite a few people locally saying, justice has been done, it's been served. No, it hasn't. It is one step in a very long road that we have to travel. So I would say to other states, um, if you are as smug and as self-satisfied as we were, look again. Wow. Deb, did you, as a white Minnesotan, have your eyes opened over the last year? <laughs> I, uh, yes. I was not even aware that white privilege existed until maybe two years ago. I was not aware of systemic racism upon which this country is founded until probably within the last year. And I am a college professor. Mm. This is, these are things that I should have known, but I was totally and completely blind to it. Deb, thank you for a powerful call. Christina, if she represents a lot of white people in America, then maybe real change will come. I hope so. But I think, you know, it also opens a larger conversation, Brian, about, you know, Black history shouldn't just be, you know, relegated to black people 
studying it in February. To not know about systemic racism in the history of this nation is a shame for all educational systems, because that means we have professors and teachers out there who aren't presenting a full and adequate story about what this nation has been and what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, keep in mind, Philando Castile was killed in 2016 in Minnesota, mm-hmm. right? And what we discovered after he was murdered were the numbers of times that black people were stopped on the road uh, by just one stretch of road by police officers. And sadly, they had fatal effects. So, I mean, this has been going on. And I think it's a larger conversation of, you know, we should all collectively feel angered that our educational system has not given us the honest truth about what this country has done and continues to do to so many racial and ethnic groups uh, in presenting such a, uh, a disproportionate ability to, to be oneself as an American. And I'm glad that Deb has educated herself and is waking up to certain realities, but it makes me shudder to think um, that so many people are are able to exist in this nation, not knowing the realities of almost 50 million black Americans and Latinx and Asian American and indigenous populations uh, who may or may not live in their respective states. Matthew in Rochester, Minnesota, you're on America, are we ready? Hi Matthew, thank you for calling in. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, So I live in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, I grew up in Georgia in a small town, Um, lived in three different states in the South, and I'm on my third state in the Midwest, that's six different states. Um, And first, I'd like to say that um, I think the bar was kind of set low for Joe Biden coming in because um, a lot of minorities, um, a lot of African Americans in this country felt completely forgotten and um, partially maybe even attacked by the Trump administration. They did not feel safe in this country. Um, and I think the, the biggest thing that Joe Biden's done so far is just to acknowledge the problem, because I don't feel like the last administration even acknowledged the problem. So that was the first step. Um, earlier, you asked somebody about um, another thing that Joe Biden has done to hopefully um, reduce the amount of equality um, between yeah, races in this country. Uh-huh. And yes, sir. And um, one thing that I've seen, so I work in renewable energy. I work in wind energy. Um, I actually climb wind turbines for a living. So I keep up with what's happening in the renewable sector. And one thing that Joe Biden has spoken about a lot is uh, the amount of um, how disproportionately um, minority communities are affected by pollution and climate change. So things like oil refineries, you know, rising tides, flooding rivers, um, things like that definitely affect minority communities more than more affluent or white communities. And I think acknowledging that problem and trying to take steps toward reducing the effects of climate change and helping those, uh, the more vulnerable and at-risk communities is really important. Um, And then the last thing I'd like to say, um, responding to the lady you just had on from Minneapolis, um, she was talking about white privilege. I also, for the longest time, like many white Americans, um, did not understand my white privilege. People would say it and I, it made no sense to me. But as I got older, once I went off to college, once I started moving to different states, like I said, I'm on my sixth state now, and uh, I work in a really small farming community outside of town. Um, People, a lot of white people in this country still don't, they don't know that they are privileged because they're white. And when you do talk about it with them, they want to deny it. They want to tell you you're wrong because they don't want to, 
They don't want to admit that they have um, benefited from a system that's hurt so many other people. Mm-hmm. Being from a small town in the South, I've seen the, the segregation that still goes on to this day, how black folks and white folks still live apart um, and, and move into the Midwest. Um, I saw a different perspective. And then being around uh, other white people in really small farming communities in the Midwest, I realized that that, um, that attitude, that thinking of there is no white privilege, I haven't had my life any easier because I was white, it still persists to this day. Matthew, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there for time. Thank you so much for all of that, including for tying our two topics from this hour together, racial injustice and the climate. And let me get one more call in here. It's Pastor Melvin Brown in Rockford, Illinois, originally from Minnesota, he says. Pastor, thank you for calling in. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. I think uh, Joe Biden as a president, is doing a great and awesome job. Also, thanks for what happened in Minnesota with the officer, that they found him guilty on all three uh, accounts. And the police, the the policemen that came up and testified against him, because one of the problems that we have is the union, the police unions that, that are so strong, the power of the blue sticking together, and we see that that break, but I also think that that our president, I mean, he's doing a good job. I I don't think he understands the fight that he's really going to have against the Republican Party or what's going on. Uh, 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 The the Republican Party is really ready for a racial fight. I mean, they've been waiting for this fight for a long time stepped in office, a whole lot of people that was underground came back out again. And, and, you know, he wants to, you know, work with the Republicans, and I think that's good, but it's not going to happen. Pastor Brown, thank you very much for calling us. And Christina Greer, we've just got 30 seconds left. So for you as a political science professor, is your analysis like the pastor's? Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I I think Joe Biden is is the man for this moment. And I think that because he is somewhat older and he's been able to evolve, uh, hopefully he can talk to some of his colleagues, but I don't know if he actually understands the calcified nature of this new Republican party. Uh, maybe he'll be able to talk some sense into some of his colleagues that he's worked with for so many decades, but um, it remains to be seen. Christina Greer, Fordham University political science professor. Thank you so, so much. And that's it for America Are We Ready, our Thursday night national call-in for Biden's first 100 days for tonight. And next week is our final show. Next Thursday is day 100. We'll wrap it up with one last look at how he's doing on fighting COVID and making the economy both stronger and fairer. That's related to racial justice and how his first 100 days have gone in general. If you want to follow my other work, you can sign up for my podcast, Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. Or I'll just see you back here one more time next Thursday night for America. Are we ready?